Hey guys, it's James. And Samuel. And he's back! He's I'm, back! I'm here. I am excited. Okay, so, uh, quick announcements. First things first, we got our, well, I got the interview up. <laughs> Sam, was, Sam wasn't home yet, but I got no. the interview up with uh, Gwen Rose Berenger. Uh, go ahead and check that out. Give it a look. Uh, kind of promoting her podcast and all of her stuff she's got going on. Really interesting shit. I, I had a fun time with the interview. So go to our page and check out a thing with Gwen Rose Berenger. Really cool yeah. shit. Uh, <clears throat> second up is the second week of September, unfortunately, being the week covering September 11th. God damn it. <laughs> um, I am going to be in Chicago for more training with my job. Yeah, so basically what we're hoping to do is, you know, prior to <clears throat> him leaving, is pre-record that episode of Down the Rabbit Hole for September 11th. That way you actually get, you know, it's a special day. And yeah. you get a pretty solid episode out of us instead of that long-distance bullshit. Yeah, because we, we noticed that doing long-distance episodes, it it feels more like a conversational phone call than it does a show. When we're in the room together, it feels right. Oh, yeah. Everything is right. It feels very right. And it being, feels so right. So right. And being on September 11th, like, that one we have to do right. That's mm-hmm. that's a special day with a special episode we we can't mess that up, so we're going to pre-record that one, we hope, and we will post that when the time comes. Yeah. So uh, keep your ear holes open and be ready for some fun shit that day. But for now, we have another episode of A Week in Anjo to cover. This yeah. week is covering, what are the dates? August 24th through the 30th. Yeah, that. What he said. Yeah, exactly what I said. So this first one was posted by Jason Booth on Thursday, August 29th, and headline is, Weber Sheriff's Office Hires SLC Officer Fired After Handcuffing Nurse in 2017 for a Part-Time Position. The Weber County Sheriff's Office has hired a former Salt Lake City Police uh, Detective who was fired after handcuffing a nurse in a dispute over drawing blood from an unconscious patient. Jeff Payne who earlier in his career worked for the Ogden Police Department and the Davis County Sheriff's Office was hired August 9th by the Weber Sheriff for part-time duty, the Sheriff's Office confirmed Wednesday. Payne's hire, first reported by the Salt Lake uh, Tribune, comes in the wake of the Weber Sheriff's hiring of another high-profile fire detective, Kayla Daloff. She was fired by the University of Utah Police Department after failing to adequately follow up on reports of threats of two students, including Lauren McCluskey. I had so many issues with names last week. Oh my god. Sam, every name was weird. Isn't it fun? Who was murdered by Melvin Rowland, according to the Tribune. Payne was hired as a part-time civilian corrections assistant and is assigned to the medical unit in the county jail. The sheriff's office said in a Facebook post, Mr. Payne was not hired as and is not employed as a law enforcement or corrections officer, the statement said. Payne underwent a background check, the sheriff's office stated. We did not see anything that would preclude us from hiring him as a part-time civilian employee. We acknowledge the concerns raised from the incident at the University of Utah. Payne handcuffed U of U hospital nurse Alex Wobbles on July 26 of 2017 after she told officers they needed a warrant before they could draw blood from an injured patient. 
Hospital policy, as well as federal law, specify that blood can't be taken and given to law enforcement unless the patient consents, is under arrest, or there is a warrant for the blood draw. Payne accused Wubbles of impeding investigation, then handcuffed and arrested her. Police video showed the tense confrontation and the nurse's apparent rough handling by Payne. Salt Lake police officials put Payne on administrative leave while they investigated the incident. Two months later, Salt Lake City Police Chief Mike Brown fired Payne and demoted another officer who was involved for violating department policy. The Weber Sheriff's Office did not return messages seeking further comment. Now see, I can respect that they fired him and demoted the other guy. That's holding them directly accountable as they fucking should. As long as they're going to exist. Yeah, the biggest problem though is this doesn't result in a blacklist from other police departments. No, because they they did the most that they could and that was we're going to get rid of this fucker and we're going to make this fucker suffer for it. Mm -hmm. And what happens? He goes to an adjacent jurisdiction and has no fucking issue. Given he's not... He's not law enforcement per se. He's still working for law enforcement. He's still however. working directly with them. And it's not... Ironically, in the medical wing. <laughs> like, what? Ain't, ain't that something? I bet he's going to get that blood now. <laughs> but it's it's bullshit. They, once you become an ex-cop, you should stay an ex-cop. Mm-hmm. Period. There, there should be no rehiring by any jurisdiction at all, anywhere. No. If you get fired from a police department... In Seattle, Washington, you shouldn't be able to get hired by a police department in China. I don't <laughs> give a shit. Global blacklist, you motherfucker. I mean, ideally, the police wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this is the reality we find ourselves in, where we are stuck with these fucking pigs with guns and badges doing whatever the fuck they want. And hardly anyone ever holds them accountable. And after seeing this, after seeing what happens when you do hold them accountable... I can understand why they don't bother. Mm-hmm. Like, the most they can do effectively equates to fuck all. Like, why bother? Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's nothing. Yeah, there's really no long-lasting uh, repercussions for these people, especially because they will not be... They won't criminally charge them. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, criminals don't give a shit about the law, so they don't yeah. care if they get hired in another jurisdiction. Yeah, they don't give a shit. But uh, this next article was posted by myself on Thursday, August 29th, and headline is, Woman says she was forced to give birth alone in Denver jail cell with no medical treatment. A woman is suing the city of and county of Denver, Denver Health Medical Center, and six individuals after she said she was forced to deliver a baby alone on a bench uh, in a jail cell at the Denver County Jail. Diana Sanchez said she gave birth to, to the boy at 10.44 a.m. on July 31, 2018, and that she told Denver Sheriff, uh, Denver Sheriff Department deputies at 5 a.m. that she was in labor, according to a 47-page lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court. She said her water had broken by 9.43 a.m., but according to the lawsuit, Sanchez gave birth with no medical supervision or treatment. Sanchez, who was booked into the jail two weeks earlier, alleges several Denver health nurses and jail staffers knew she had been in active labor for hours, was days away from her due date, and her water had broken hours before. The lawsuit alleges nurses and Denver Sheriff's deputies, quote, callously made her labor alone for hours and ultimately give birth alone in a dirty jail cell without any medical care. 
the failure to provide care to a woman who is in labor and a baby who is born without any medical assistance in a dirty jail cell is this is not civilized sanchez's attorney mary newman said but what about my taxes that we pay to live in a civilized society shouldn't that be civilized isn't that what taxes are for <laughs> but a video from inside the jail shows moments after sanchez gives birth a male nurse is seen walking after he had been uh, watching from outside the cell he picks up the baby as though he's never seen one in his life, Newman said. I mean, the lack of any sort of compassion is astounding. Besides the city and county of Denver and Denver Health Medical Center, individuals named in the lawsuit are Rashim Hirsch, uh, Nina Chacon, Alexandra Wary, Michael Hart, Tyson Garcia, and Justin Albee. The care and well-being of our inmates is a top priority for the uh, Denver Sheriff's Department, which is why we contract with the Denver Health to provide comprehensive medical care at both of our jails, a sheriff's spokeswoman said in a statement. That's a lie. Yeah. <clears throat> we care for them. Bullshit. Quote, after uh, learning that Ms. Sanchez gave birth in a cell at the Denver <clears throat> County Jail on July 31st, 2018, Sheriff Patrick Furman immediately ordered Internal Affairs to conduct a review to understand what happened. Denver Health was also asked to review this incident. The spokeswoman said after the investigation, it was determined the deputies, quote, took the appropriate actions under the circumstances and followed the relevant policies and procedures. Policy has since been clarified that when an inmate goes in labor, uh, an emergency ambulance, ambulance will be called. The lawsuit was filed to, quote, hold to account the officials who cruelly chose convenience over compassion. Any lay person can see that a woman who, uh, who has been in labor for hours and hours and who is yelling, calling that she's in labor and needs to call the hospital, needs to go to the hospital, pick up the phone and call 911, Newman said. Denver Health said because it is a pending legal matter, it is not able to comment. Now, see, my issue with this they said they did everything by policy. Everything mm -hmm. was done by the book. Um, Apparently, just ignoring the fact that the woman's in labor is policy. That, that That's appropriate, you know, behavior. Yeah. But the issue is that it's, it's not just that that is the policy. My issue is not just that their policy inadequately handles a woman going into labor. The mm -hmm. issue is with order followers. Yeah. Fuck compassion. Fuck basic humanity. Fuck... Fuck decency and respect. We're going to do things by the book. Mm -hmm. We're going to follow our orders to a T. Why? Because that's what we do. They just follow orders. Let, let her birth a child in a disease-ridden jail cell full of filth and waste. Let mm -hmm. her do that. Why? Because it's by the book. The book <laughs> says to do it this way. It must be okay to do it this way. Mm -hmm. No. Fuck your book and fuck you for following it. Yeah. Yeah, this is that's it's disgusting, and to think of the the infections that both her and the child could have gained from giving birth in a jail jail cell. Yeah, like what? what those what aren't sanitary <laughs> even remotely. No. So this next article is uh, posted by Jason Booth on Thursday, August 29th, and the headline is "The Great Seattle Pot Heist." Regina Lazanke was about to head to work when she got the text from the owners of the business next door to hers, the razor wire topped chain link gate and front door to her building were swinging open, and a single jar of marijuana lay on the ground beside the gate. She had been robbed. 
Four months earlier, in September 2017, Lazanke's business, Plantworks, had joined the thousand-plus other produce processors licensed to supply Washington's burgeoning trade in recreational marijuana. She and her partner set out to grow high-end craft weed in 2,500 square feet of an anonymous industrial strip in Seattle's North End. On the night of the break-in in January 2018, Plantworks had a full crop, 26 pounds of high-quality dried, cured flour worth about $52,000, ready to deliver to local cannabis shops. <clears throat> the thieves, recounts Lazanke, if that throws me off because I feel like it's going to be Lazanski and it's not, it's Lazanki. Bypass the or live Lizanke. plants. Lazanki. I'm going to say Lazanki. <laughs> Bypass the live plants and headed straight for the ready to sell stock, cleaning it out. It was devastating. Lazanki asked around and discovered she was just one in a rash of growers in and around Seattle who have suffered similar break ins, six of whom consented to be interviewed for this article. Their accounts followed a pattern. The burglars came in the wee hours and speedily cut the electricity to the security cameras and alarms. Sometimes they smashed through walls to get in, avoiding the alarms on the doors. Because even the legal uh, grow operations tend to be unsigned and inconspicuously located in small warehouses and industrial strips, the noise went unnoticed. And the burglars chose their targets well. Bypassing large grow operations with highly secure, purpose-built facilities, they hit smaller, more vulnerable growers producing high-end, easy-to-move weed. The robbers also showed an uncanny sense of timing, striking just as the growers had amassed inventories of cut, cured, ready-to-sell product worth thousands, even tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ooh. The growers began posting news of the heist on Instagram, swapping conjectures as to how the burglars knew when and where and when to strike. Two hypotheses emerged. The first, that an employee at a retail pot shop was either involved in the break-ins or telling the burglars whom to hit. But as the burglaries continued, the growers came to suspect that the criminals had found another way of getting the information they needed to target vulnerable businesses offering big payoffs. The government was giving it to them. Huh. After Washington's residents became the first in the nation, to, together with Colorado's, to vote to rec uh, legalize recreational marijuana sales in possession in 2012, the State Liquor Board, newly renamed the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, adopted exhaustive rules and regulations to govern the new trade. These require that cannabis producers and processors provide uh, much more detailed information about their activities to the state each month than other businesses are ob obliged to provide. Things that exactly how many plants they grow and harvest, by batch, and strain, how much inventory they hold, and how much they sell, when, to whom, for how much. Whenever they transport product, they must file cargo manifests with detailed vehicle information. Quote, we plant a seed, we report it, Lazanke uh, says. You take a cutting, you report it. How long you dry, what the final weight was, how soon did it go out the door, what did you sell, who did you sell it to, for how much, what did they mark it up to. Easily 25% of our time is given over to tracking. The state and state licensed data firms then post much of this information online where it is available to the public. In other words, Lazanke and other growers fear this, that this system, put in place to ensure transparency and accountability in the newly legalized industry, may also leave a data trail that leads thieves straight to their doors right when the pickings are fattest. Quote, if you are a crook, 
It is veritable. It is a ver- uh, veritable laundry list of targets," said Andrew Maris, a partner in the Seattle cannabis grower Fire Bros, which lost what it says was worth two hundred thousand dollars of oh, weed damn. to burglars last summer. Lazanki and other growers complain that while Washington is busy policing them, state officials aren't paying nearly enough attention to catching the actual criminals or tracking the marijuana that is being diverted to illegal markets out of state. For all the state's talk of transparency, local law enforcement and the WLCB told me they don't, uh, they don't track cumulative data on marijuana thefts. My ongoing public disclosure request for case files from thefts and robberies at licensed cannabis businesses in Seattle has so far turned up 54 from 2016 to 2018, but this list is far from complete. It, conclu- it, uh, it includes only crimes against retail vendors, not growers. So it does not include about one dozen burglaries suffered by growers interviewed for this story, all of whom say they called the police and have yet to see any perpetuators uh, or perpetrators apprehended. Last year, in a disclosure not intended for public consumption, Seattle Police Detective Nick Cartes, Carts, I don't know, attested <laughs> in a sworn certificate of probable cause filed against one of the lo- few local cannabis burglars to be caught and prosecuted that in 2017 alone, quote, Seattle police had more than 65 reported burglaries to marijuana shops. Carts and Seattle police burglary and narcotics unit commanders declined requests for comment. Meanwhile, the thefts have continued into this year, and Washington is grappling with a puzzle, uh, with a puzzle that will haunt other states as legal marijuana expands. How to bring transparency, accountability, and security to an industry that has been covert and illicit for most of its history and that still fuels a lucrative black market in most of the country. Washington regulators say they are committed to enforcing transparency in a trade that is still illegal in the eyes of the federal government. But in the process, the state might be turning its legitimate vendors into targets for bad actors who have a huge incentive to exploit the rules and just grab the goods. And you know, it was the industry was doing a lot better before all of this transparency bullshit. Mm-hmm. They didn't have all these problems before government regulations stepped in, turned it into a white market. Well, and it made it, it, it drove the prices up. It made the business really difficult to operate. Oh, yeah. Like they said, 25% of their time goes just to tracking. Yeah. Needless tracking. That's, that's a lot of unnecessary labor wasted on government compliance. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. So whatever you're paying, the people doing this, you can expect that 25% of what you're paying them is unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, just the regulations alone drive the cost. The taxes drive the cost. Oh, yeah. And that's why in uh, California, the black market is actually thriving more than ever because they can legally grow it, but the regulations are so fucking stringent for illegally selling it that they're just turning to illegally selling it. And it's yeah. significantly cheaper and easier to operate. I don't blame them. I don't either. Keep it black. Yeah. Black mm. markets matter. They really do. So this next article was posted by Jason Booth on Thursday, August 29th. And the headline is, A DEA agent got a drug dealer to buy a truck so the agent could seize it through asset forfeiture. Which is an interesting choice of words. They could have just said so he could steal it through theft. Yeah. So a former Drug Enforcement Administration agent was convicted Tuesday of lying and falsifying records to hide a long-running scheme to skim money and other property during drug busts. 
In one scheme, he convinced a confidential informant to buy a truck so the agent could seize it through asset forfeiture. A New Orleans jury found former DEA Special Agent Chad Scott guilty of seven counts of perjury, obstruction of justice, and falsifying government records. The U.S. government's indictment alleged that from at least 2009 to 2016, Scott and two other members of a New Orleans drug task force conspired to steal money from suspects and from the DEA's evidence locker and to falsify records to cover their tracks. Part of Scott's misconduct involved getting a Houston drug dealer to purchase a $43,000 Ford F-150 so that Scott could seize it through asset forfeiture laws and then use it as a work vehicle. Scott falsifies seizure, re seizure records to make it appear that he had taken the truck in Louisiana. Federal prosecutors also accused Scott of convinc uh, convincing two drug traffickers to lie on the stand about a third defendant, uh, defendant's involvement in a drug case in exchange for more lenient sentences. The third defendant's conviction was later overturned. The New Orleans Advocate reported in 2016 that Scott, who, style, who, who styled himself as the White Devil, was one of the most successful DEA agents in the region when it came to big drug busts and large cash hauls. The Advocate also reported that in 2004, a woman filed a complaint to the DEA and the Louisiana uh, State Police claiming she saw Scott take drugs from a house following an arrest. Because of Scott's status as a casemaker, numerous complaints against him and other red flags were ignored. That changed after Scott was indicted in 2017 as part of a wide-ranging FBI probe into the DEA's troubled New Orleans Field Division. During Scott's case, federal prosecutors attempted to enter other past misconduct issues going back to 1999 into evidence. Holy shit. So this guy's been at it for a while. Sounds like it. But uh, all I'm getting off of this is, as it goes, good cops do bad things. Oh, yeah. He he had a record as being a good cop. As he, a casemaker. Yeah, he, he was the go-to guy. He was a great cop, did all these great cop things. Turns out he was dirty as fuck. He, was, he, he did bad things. And they ignored a lot of the complaints and red flags because he was a casemaker. It's like, oh, yeah. we're... Yeah, if we indict him with this stuff, uh, it's gonna like you know it's gonna cause a lot of cases to collapse. So let's just pretend this didn't happen. Yeah, and it's funny because I don't doubt that most of those cases he made were bullshit. Yeah, it was like, well, he's he's got a lot of bullshit that'll make us look good. No, stop, just stop. Get some help. Get some help. This next article was posted by Jason Booth on Saturday, August twenty fourth. Headline is, an innocent man spent months in jail after customs officials thought honey he brought back from Jamaica was liquid meth. A Maryland man spent nearly three months in jail. <laughs> I just remembered the gallon of PCP video. Oh my god. <laughs> but uh, a Maryland man spent nearly three months in jail after U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents at Baltimore's airport thought honey he had brought back from a trip to Jamaica was liquid meth. Leon, ha uh, Leon Houghton told the Washington Post that he was jailed for 82 days after officials at Baltimore Washington International Thurgood Marshall Airport, that's a mouthful, alleged that the, th that the three jars of honey were actually meth on December 29th. 20 days after his arrest, a state police lab determined that the honey which he, brought at a, uh, which he bought at a roadside stand in Jamaica was, in fact, honey, not methamphetamine. And so the felony drug charges were dropped, but he remained in jail because, as a green card holder, the felony charges had triggered an immigration detainer. 
He wasn't released until charges were dropped entirely when a federal lab test confirmed there were no drugs in the honey. Houghton, a Jamaican native and green card holder with no prior convictions, told the Post that this was the first time he had been stopped by customs in the 10 years he had been traveling back and forth to visit his mother. Charging documents seen by the Post said that prior to Houghton's arrest, officers told Houghton that the honey bottles, which were clear, had gold-colored screw tops and were labeled honey, tested positive for methamphetamine. The felony drug counts were dropped to misdemeanors, which I don't understand. If it's not fucking drugs, how is it still a misdemeanor? It looks like drugs. How dare you have things that looks like drugs? They were dropped to misdemeanors on January 23rd after lab tests first detected no drugs in the honey. But because an immigration detainer was triggered because of his green card status, Houghton remained in jail on misdemeanor charges instead of being granted bail. Houghton's lawyer, Terry Morris, tried to contact U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to lift the detainer, but the government was in the midst of a shutdown and he was unable to reach anyone. Houghton was finally released from jail on March 21st after 82 days spending incarcerated when a federal test determined the bottles were, in fact, filled with honey. No way. Now he's trying to put his life back together. After losing his job while in jail, he is now working as a bread truck driver. Quote, I'm scared to even travel right now, Houghton told the Post. You're innocent and can end up in jail. Yeah. Been there, done that, not fun. No, it is not. But just kind of goes to show the flawed drug tests, field drug tests that they use, and also the idiotic, like, um, observations made by law enforcement. This is clearly liquid meth. Are are you you retarded? Are you fucking stupid? Not to mention the, uh, the that plays into the immigration laws and how much bullshit that's causing for everyone. Yep, just the fact that he was a green card holder meant that these false charges landed him even longer in jail, which caused him to lose his job. Yeah. Fucking your life up internationally. Yeah, and I could imagine if he was a work if he held a work visa as opposed to a uh, green card, they probably would have just held him till he got fired and be like, "Oh, well, your work visa is invalid now. Goodbye." Right. After 10 years in the United States. <clears throat> but uh, this next article was posted by Ryan Bauer on Monday, August 26th. And the headline is, I still think they're heroes, Houston's uh, police chief says of the cops who killed a couple during a fraudulent drug raid. While the narcotics officers charged with murder and evidence tampering were bad eggs, Art A. Acevedo? Acevedo says their colleagues acted in good faith. Quote, I still think they're heroes, Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo says of the narcotics officers who shot and killed Dennis Tuttle and Regina Nicholas during a fraudulent drug raid at their Harding Street home on January 28th. You know, the Catholic Crusaders also acted in good faith. (laughs) (laughs) At a press conference Friday, Acevedo said uh, Gerald Goins the officer who instigated the raid by falsely claiming that a confidential informant had bought heroin from Tuttle at the house the day before, and Stephen Bryant, who bolstered Goins' cover story, had dishonored their badges in the Houston Police Department. But Acevedo insisted that the other officers who participated in the raid had, quote, acted in good faith and killed the couple in self-defense. Totally! Yeah, Goins was charged with two counts of felony murder on Friday, Quote, because false information was provided to a magistrate in order to secure a search warrant, Harris County District Attorney Kim Ogg explained during another press conference on Friday. 
Quote, Goins's actions violated Texas Penal Code 30, uh, 37.10, which makes tampering with a governmental record a felony when it is, a, when it is done to defraud or harm another. And because Goins's false statements led to a no-knock raid in which two people were killed, Og said his conduct met the definition of felony murder. No which, way. Yeah. Which occurs when someone in the course of a felony commits, quote, an act clearly dangerous to human life that causes the death of an individual. Felony murder is punishable by five years to life in prison. Bryant faces a charge of tampering with a governmental record, a second-degree felony punishable by two to 20 years in prison. In an offense report sup, uh, supplement Bryant wrote two days after the raid, Og said he claimed he had assisted Goins in the investigation of drug dealing at the Harding Street house. Goins named Bryant in his search warrant affidavit, saying he had verified that the brown powder substance supposedly purchased from Tuttle was black tar heroin. Og and Goins later admitted to HPD investigators that Bryant had done no such thing. Goins also admitted that no informant had bought heroin at the house. Instead, he switched to claiming that he had made the purchase himself, although he could not say whether Tuttle was the man that sold the heroin to him. So... He's over here saying that he did something illegal, so he doesn't depend on someone. Because he, he should know going and buying drugs is illegal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Either way, he's outing himself. Yeah. <clears throat> Bunch of but shit. Good to see he's facing criminal charges. Yeah. I, I don't doubt, because they said 2 to 20 years, I bet he gets one. Either that or he gets a plea deal that reduces everything to misdemeanors. Probably. That way the felony murder doesn't even go into account. And then he's going to stay in his job and keep heroing on. Everything will be just fine. Fucking bastard. But uh, this next article was posted by Jason Booth on Friday, August 30th. Headline is, Buffalo teacher sold weed for 20 years. Caught with pot, guns, and explosives, feds say. My dude! First off, fucking hero. Like, I wish my teachers were that fucking cool. Right? That's, who? that's fun. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. So a Williamsville man who teaches at a Buffalo high school has been accused of selling marijuana for as long as 20 years, according to a federal criminal complaint. Investigators found weapons and explosives at 52-year-old Michael Massachia's home following a search warrant executed Friday, according to a news release Thursday from U.S. Attorney's Office. Investigators seized seven homemade explosives, marijuana, marijuana paraphernalia, and $27,950 in cash according to the complaint, which was filed Wednesday in federal court. The cash was hidden in clothing and bound with rubber bands, according to the complaint. Massachia had been involved in the growing and distribution of significant quantities of marijuana for at least the past 20 years, attorney's office spokeswoman Barbara Burns said in a news release. The suspect was at home with his wife and two children when federal law enforcement from Homeland Security Investigations searched his home, according to the complaint. Investigators found two rifles, five shotguns, and a pistol, various ammunition for the firearms, seven homemade explosives, three mason jars containing marijuana, various steroids in liquid and tablet form, hypodermic needles, THC edibles, cannabis syrup, two grams of a white powder suspected to be cocaine, suspected hashish, a digital scale, numerous plastic bags and small bottles containing marijuana, and four cell phones. This guy had a fucking operation. Dude dude was fucking loaded. And frankly... Fucking legend over here. I, most of what they found was entirely legal. Mm-hmm. Like, the firearms, who gives a shit if they're registered or not, shall not be infringed. 
Mm-hmm. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Shall not. Although, I gotta say, it kind of sucks they didn't really do him much good. Because yeah. they, they broke into his house, kidnapped him, and stole his shit. So, yeah. evidently, he had those guns with no intent of doing anything with them. You've got to boogaloo. Oh, God. But fucking, most of what they found was entirely legal. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guns are consistent with the firearms being tools of the drug trafficking trade, according to the complaint. The weapons weapons were a Kel-Tec 9mm semi-automatic rifle, a Savage uh, 22 caliber rifle, two Remington shotguns, a New England Firearms uh, 410 gauge shotgun, two Mossberg shotguns, and a Masterpiece Arms pistol. The explosives, which investigators did not describe, were homemade with the use of a hot glue gun, according to the complaint. That's quite dangerous, as the tips of hot glue guns can ignite explosives, investigators wrote. Why Evidently, Mass- he knows what he's doing. Clearly. Why Massachia had the explosives was not described in the complaint. Because fuck you. The teacher is facing three federal charges of marijuana possession with the intent to distribute, maintaining a premises intended for the sale of marijuana and possession of firearms in furtherance of his marijuana sales, according to the complaint. Man's I- a legend. May we, he rest in peace. We need more dudes like this. Like, holy shit, that's that's some that's some like next level operation shit. He knows exactly who to sell to. Mm-hmm. Fucking teenagers. <laughs> I mean, he Perfect works distribution platform. I mean, he doesn't even have to advertise. He just sells to one kid, and you're gonna be like, "Hey, I got this dope from uh, the history teacher." He's like, "Really now?" And then everyone starts flooding the history class, and they're like, "No, he no." All the only people that know that know it's him is his selected uh, distributors. So maybe like five or six people know it's him because he's their supplier, and then they have their lesser distributors that work under them. Have a marijuana pyramid not, scheme. Supplying not only the school but also the town. This go. guy's a fucking genius. And I, I bet after his arrest, the entire city got more angry. <laughs> Probably. Everyone was up in arms like, what's wrong with all you guys? My weed's gone! <laughs> you you smoke the devil's lettuce? The devil's lettuce. Well, I did. And then they arrested my supplier. They arrested the whole city's supplier. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, God bless that man. Yeah, this brings us to our first wild card of the show, being our Joker card. This one's posted by Leanne Jones on Sunday, August 25th. And headline is, Trump suggested nuking hurricanes to stop them from hitting the U.S. Yeah, this is not satire, you guys. <sighs> Okay, so President Trump has suggested multiple times to senior homeland security and national security officials that they explore using nuclear bombs to stop hurricanes from hitting the United States, according to sources who have heard the president's private remarks and been briefed on a National Security Council memorandum that recorded those comments. Behind the scenes, during one hurricane briefing at the White House, Trump said, I got it, I got it, why don't we nuke them? According to one source who was there, quote, they start forming off the coast of Africa. As they're moving across the Atlantic, we drop a bomb inside the eye of the hurricane and it disrupts it. Why can't we do that? The source added, paraphrasing the president's remarks. Trump also raised the idea in another conversation with a senior administration official. A 2017 NSC memo describes the second conversa- that second conversation in which Trump asked whether the administration should bomb hurricanes to stop them from hitting the homeland. A source briefed on the NSC uh, memo said that it does not contain the word nuclear. Uh, it just says the president talked about bombing hurricanes. 
the big picture, Trump didn't invent this idea. The notion that detonating a nuclear bomb over the eye of a hurricane could be used to counteract convection's currents, da- uh, currents dates to the Eisenhower era oh, when God. it was floated by a government scientist. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I want him to try it. Like, I want to live to see all someone try would, this stupid shit. All it would do is succeed in tossing fallout from Haiti all the way to fuck, probably the middle of the United States. <laughs> it's it's a shit lesson that they're going to learn mm-hmm. once. Like, trial and error, my dude. Let's, let's fucking nuke a hurricane and see how well that goes. Yeah, must do that. You just killed half the world. Good. Overpopulation is no longer a problem. Oh, man. He actually... Trump's- Trump's an interesting character. He actually suggested this. Like, I, I saw a meme floating Why around. Why can't we that, do that? I saw a meme floating around that, like, a lot of the shit he says sounds like stuff people would say when they're stoned out of their gourd. Except he's fucking sober. <laughs> we think. We think. I, think. I, I don't know. He's either... This dude's either, like, intoxicated on whatever... Or he's legitimately retarded. I don't know. I don't care. It's funny, and I like watching him say stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, that brings us to the end of our first half of A Week in Anjo. If I'm not mistaken, even though we have about three cuts here, it's been a pretty long first segment. But <laughs> we're going to take a little break, and we'll get right back to it. It'll be a few seconds for you, but it'll be about seven years for us. Yeah. You got to stay sexy. Hey guys, it's James. And Samuel. And he's back this time. No more listening to me bullshit on Anjo by myself. And we God, didn't that... even do a mic check. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> All right, guys, and welcome back from that short little break. We are back. We are front. We are sides. Let's do this. It is now the year twenty or yeah, 2026. It has been seven years since the last segment was recorded, and we have gone back in time to deliver this to you on time. Because as I said, it would be seven years. By the way, in 2026, they totally gave us time travel, so we are back from the future. Yes. (laughs) So this first article was posted by Ryan Bauer on Sunday, August 25th. Headline is, Kids ordered to pay sales tax at Children's Expo receive a sad lesson in entrepreneurship. 12-year-old Lucy Wise couldn't wait to open her own business. On three separate occasions, she had accompanied her mother to the Children's Entrepreneur Market, an expo of child-run businesses hosted annually by the Utah nonprofit Libertas Institute. Dreaming of the day, she could set up her own booth and sell her wares to curious passers-by. Lucy's experience as a spectator at prior markets had given her time to think long and hard about what kind of company she wanted to start. Getting a jump start on the summer when she uh, would make her debut at the Children's Entrepreneur Project, she planted 500 flower seeds in the months leading up to her first event. Once the flowers bloomed, she arranged them into beautiful bouquets to sell to her customers. Lucy's enthusiasm for running her own business is exactly the kind of mindset the Children's Entrepreneur Market has been trying to cultivate in the three years since it began. While the children's market is intended to teach children to love entrepreneurship, one thing it isn't supposed to do is crush their spirit with the harsh realities of government overreach. On August 7th, the children's entrepreneur market was held in Spanish Fork, where thousands of people walked past booths sampling products and purchasing goods from these young business people. As the event came to a close and the children began to close up shop, city officials came around with something veteran participants had never encountered before. Tax forms. 
To everyone's surprise, the city is insisting that each child pays sales tax revenue to the state tax commission this year. In fact, even kids who did not earn a dime at the market are still obligated to file tax forms with the state. <clears throat> After years of hosting this event in different cities in the state, this is the first instance of any municipality trying to collect sales tax from these kids, organizers and attendees say. Danielle Payne, mother to uh, two kidpreneurs, kidpreneurs, that's a fun little word, um, <clears throat> who participated in the event, expressed her disdain for what Spanish Fork is doing, especially since it is the parents who will truly have to deal with this. Quote, we work on this all summer. We sold out last year. It looks like mom's taking the hit on the taxes this year, she said. This isn't sitting well with Libertas founder and president Connor Boyack either. He insists that the city's action is unlawful. Boyack points out that subsection 13 of the state sales tax statute protects businesses of this nature from being made to report or pay sales tax since they are not engaging in regular commerce. Since the market is only a four-hour-long event, asking children to pay sales tax would be akin to asking a child-run lemonade business to fork over a portion of their earnings to the state, something almost no one would stand for in good conscience if it started happening. Quote, The law is pretty clear that if a child sells lemonade on their sidewalk, they don't have to collect and remit the sales tax because they're not a regular business. This, their activity is inherently irregular and infrequent, Boyack told uh, Fee, which is the, uh, the news outlet. But the Utah Tax Commission argues, apparently without any law to back them up, <clears throat> that if this, that same child sells their lemonade as part of our ch children's entrepreneur market or another organized event, they magically lose their exemption and have to fill out complicated tax forms and pay the tax. Spanish Fork spokesman Scott Aylett uh, commented, quote, We're pretty objective with the law. We expect vendors to pay taxes to the state. Yet, this seems a bit odd since the subsection actually explicitly protects businesses of this kind from being subject to paying sales tax. However, since the children's market is an organized event, Aylett and the other Spanish Fork officials argue this subjects the children to taxation. Quote, at the end of the day, it's between them and the tax commission, Aylett commented. It doesn't matter if they're 10 or 100 years old. Boyack is refusing to take this lying down. Libertas is working with state senator Jacob Andereg to open a bill, a bill fill to address this issue and, as Boyack hopes, shut it down before more kids are uh, burdened with tax forms. Boyack sees this as laziness on the part of the commission, which would rather make everyone fill out the forms and pay taxes instead of looking at which individuals are actually legally required to file paperwork. Boyack commented, It's one thing to force kids to do this if it's the law, but, it's not, uh, but in this case, it's not. It's a handful of bureaucrats lazily wanting to make uh, all event vendors pay the tax rather than going to the trouble of identifying which ones are exempt and which ones aren't. In the meantime, Boyack has instructed parents to claim zero on the tax forms before sending them back to the state. <clears throat> As Boyack himself once said, let's at least give kids a taste of the free market before the crushing bureaucracy weighs in upon them. No. No. Do not give them a taste without the bureaucracy. Just let, give them the free market. Let them see immediately that taxation is theft. Mm -hmm. These kids work all summer to prepare their wares for a four-hour event mm -hmm. and it fucking it makes their summer it makes the kids smile that's awesome it's great 
And if you give and it's them, like it's cultivating a new era of business people. Yeah, of of people that you know are really the foundation of the nation. You when you have someone like that make their business, that's job creation because they're going to mm-hmm. have to have uh, ground workers. They're going to have to have management. They're going to have to have a lot of shit involved. Mm-hmm. That's job creation. Yep. And what the government here is doing is discouraging that. Yeah. They want the economy to fail. Why? So they can get as much money out of it as they can. Yeah. But teach the kids that taxation is theft. Teach them that the government has no right to the output of their labor. Yeah. They they spend their whole summer slaving, making their products, getting everything ready so they can go and be proud of themselves for all of four hours. And do something that they really enjoy. They love it. The kid, If they didn't love it, they wouldn't have done it, what, three years now? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have continued doing this if they didn't love it. And evidently, they do. They love this whole idea of, of making something of themselves, and then the government comes in and says, oh, by the way, some of that's ours. Yeah, give us your money. The fuck you mean that's yours? What the fuck have you done to earn it? Right? They, they weren't in there planting seeds and arranging bouquets for, yeah. for passersby. They weren't doing any of that shit. No. So, mm-hmm. But that's teach, the nature of the government. Teach these kids, first off, file zero on all your fucking tax forms. I stand by that. And then teach the kids why that's right to do. Teach mm-hmm. the kids why it's right not to pay any taxes at all and fuck the government. Teach yep. them that taxation is theft. Hell yeah. All right, so this next article was posted by Jason Booth on Wednesday, August 28th. <clears throat> Headline is, Each American is $240,000 in debt because of excessive government spending. By the end of 2019, the debt will be close to $23 trillion. That amounts to a credit card bill of $69,200 for every man, woman, and child in America. And they mean it, and child. Yeah. But that's only the money that the government has explicitly borrowed. It doesn't include any measure of, quote, unfunded obligations. Money the government doesn't have, but nonetheless promises to spend. Unfunded obligations are often considered problems for future citizens, but with Medicare and Social Security both running cash flow deficits and running out of money in 2026 and 2035 respectively, these future obligations have uh, become a current burden. Social Security's unfunded obligations alone amount to $13.9 trillion. This means that, over the next 75 years, the government has promised to pay out $13.9 trillion more than it expects to collect in payroll taxes. At $42,200 per person, Social Security's shortfall alone is about as much as the average person earns in a year. It's enough to buy a new sedan and pay for a year's rent in a median rent two-bedroom apartment. If Social Security's shortfall wasn't bad enough, it pales in comparison to Medicare's $42.3 trillion in unfunded obligations. God damn. At $128,500 per person, a whopping $514,000 for a family of four. America's runaway Great Society program lauded by socialists as a model for the future of healthcare is already breaking America's bank. All combined, each American effectively owns $240,000 worth of U.S. debt and unfunded obligations, an amount equal to the average home price in the United States. Just imagine having to pay two mortgages instead of one just to cover past government excesses. So I'm thinking I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give them an IOU for that debt. I'm going to have that as my uh, what is it, unfunded 
program. Obligation. Yeah, my unfunded your... obligation. Yep, that's your unfunded it's, obligation. It's money I have not spent, and I don't appear to have any intention of spending, but I'll give you a promise instead. I promise you I'll spend it even though I don't have the money. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, totally. I I'll give you two hundred and forty thousand yeah. dollars. And I love how you know socialists <laughs> really do try to say, oh, America can totally swap to a socialist system. Meanwhile, we're already a mixed economy between socialist programs and capitalism, and we're already failing with very very moderate socialist programs. Yeah, and we're twenty three trillion in debt. And counting. Just that's going that's, up and up and up. That's rookie numbers. We can bring that up. <laughs> Socialists, stand in solidarity with debt. Yeah. But uh, this next article was posted by myself on Monday, August 26th. Headline is, Johnson & Johnson ordered to pay $572 million in Oklahoma opioid case. Now this, I kind of love it, just because... It is unexpected to see a government judge rule against Big Pharma. Isn't it, though? It's a nice change of pace. It's interesting. It looks like the government might start to get out of bed with Big Pharma. Don't let that fool you, though. They're still yeah, evil. They're still very fucking evil. An Oklahoma judge ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572 million for contributing to the state's opioid addiction crisis, a verdict that could signal further findings of liability for drug companies as similar cases wind through courts across the country. More than 2,000 cases brought by state and local, uh, local municipalities seek to hold drug makers, retail pharmacy chains, and distributors accountable for widespread opioid abuse that began gaining public attention in the early 2000s. That flood of litigation coincides with intensifying efforts by the Justice Department to use data to investigate overprescription of opioids by doctors. <clears throat> Oklahoma's case was the first to go to trial and became focused solely on Johnson & Johnson after two other drug makers settled their claims. In a widely anticipated ruling Monday, Oklahoma State Court Judge uh, Thad Balkman said the state proved Johnson & Johnson launched a misleading marketing campaign to convince the public that opioids posed little addiction risk and were appropriate to treat a range of chronic pain. Quote, The increase in opioid addiction and overdose deaths following the parallel increase in opioid sales in Oklahoma was not a coincidence, the judge wrote. From 1994 to 2006, pre uh, prescription opioid sales increased fourfold, the judge said in the ruling. In 2015, more than 326 million opioid pills were dispensed in the state, enough for every adult Oklahoman to have 110 pills. That sounds fun. <laughs> Not with opioids. But, uh, <laughs> judge Balkman ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay for just one year of abatement, not the 20 or more years the state requested. He said the $572 million should go towards addiction treatment and overdose prevention services, programs aimed at managing pain without opioids and other resources. Johnson & Johnson said it would appeal the judgment and that the judge's conclusions disregard the company's compliance with federal and state laws. Quote, the company here made medicines that are essential for patients who suffer from debilitating harm, Sabrina Strong, an attorney for Johnson & Johnson, said after the ruling. Quote, they did it responsibly, even though marijuana can easily phase out opioids we don't entirely. Talk, we don't talk about that. Marijuana, <laughs> bad. <laughs> Devil's lettuce. <laughs> but uh, Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter, Mike Hunter, <laughs> commended the ruling, calling it, quote, a major victory for the state of Oklahoma 
the nation and everyone who has lost a loved one because of an opioid overdose, Mike Hunter. <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, over the course of the seven-week trial, attorneys for Oklahoma argued that Johnson & Johnson is liable not only for two opioid drugs it sold, the fentanyl patch Duragesic and Tapentadol pill uh, Nusinta, Nusinta, <clears throat> but... Which- Quick, quick cut. Uh, fentanyl <laughs> has been regulated even by black market dealers on the dark web. Uh, they don't even sell that. That doesn't surprise me. They're going to kill their fucking their consumer base. Yeah. When these serious drug dealers refuse to dabble with it, mm-hmm. why the fuck are you still selling it? <laughs> but, uh, but also because it owned two companies that supplied the active pharmaceutical ingredients and narcotic raw materials to other drug makers for their own opioid painkillers. The judge said in the ruling that Johnson & Johnson's uh, misleading marketing included unbranded campaigns jointly developed with other companies that suggested pain was undertreated and that higher amounts of opioid prescriptions were the solution. The state said the company's actions created a public nuisance and asked the judge to award as much as $17 billion to abate the costs of the crisis. Analysts followed the Oklahoma trial closely for signs of what might happen in the broader opioid uh, litigation. Attention will turn next to Cleveland, where two counties are set to go to trial in October against an array of drug makers and distributors. That trial is serving as a uh, bellwether for hundreds of others brought by cities and counties that have been uh, consolidated in federal court in Ohio before U.S. District Judge Dan Polster. So my thing with this whole thing, um, I understand Johnson & Johnson being very bad in this particular story, um, fueling an opioid crisis. But the thing is, um, those people do have a right to their body and to choose what they want to put in it. But mm-hmm. the, the thing is, is Johnson & Johnson is managing this in such a way that they're manipulating people into thinking that this is the only solution. Mm-hmm. And a lot but of these, not. And a lot of these people, once they get off of the prescribed opioids, they turn to heroin. Duh. And that's, that's a whole can of worms by itself. That's fucked up. Yeah, and I think really the the opioid crisis just kind of goes to show how much... And also with the demonization of marijuana, you can't trust the FDA. You can't. You really Because the can't. FDA is the, is the company that has been driving home for so many years that opioids are completely fine, non-addictive, healthy. Meanwhile, marijuana is a highly addictive class one or schedule one gateway drug that leads to everything bad that could possibly happen in your life and has no medical benefits like pre- whatsoever. Like premarital sex, over-masturbation, yeah. possibly death. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just absurd. Marijuana but. might lead to you having a good time for once in your fucking life. <laughs> but right. they push the opioids so hard because it is it is addictive, mm-hmm. and the more they sell it, uh, obviously the more profit. So if they're selling something that is addictive, they're, they have you addicted to making them profits. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to try and say everything they can to protect it, and they're going to manipulate the end user as much as they can to make them rely on it. Mm-hmm. Not just uh, in the addictive nature of it, but they're going, to give them a, um, they're going to give them a reliance on it. They're going to make you feel like you do need it because nothing else works. Mm-hmm. There's several solutions out there, and they won't fucking tell you because yep. they want your money for their addictive drugs. Mm-hmm. But it is good to actually see someone standing up to Big Pharma. Yeah. So that is nice. 
Okay, so this next article was posted by Ryan Bauer on Saturday, August 24th. Headline is, Captain Who Rescued Migrants at Sea Refuses Paris Medal, Calling It Hypocritical. The captain of a controversial ship that saved migrants in the Mediterranean Sea has refused to accept a medal for her work. Pia Klimp, who is German, <clears throat> gained attention for rescuing thousands of stranded migrants with her crew as part of a non-governmental organization, Sea Watch International. For her efforts, she reportedly faces up to 20 years in prison in Italy, where the hardline anti-immigrant government accuses her of assisting illegal immigration. In a Facebook message published Tuesday night, Klimp announced that <clears throat> she was rejecting the Grand Vermeil, Vermeil, Grand Vermeil Medal, which the city of Paris awards for bravery. She told Mayor Anne Hidalgo that the city was brimming with hypocrisy. Quote, hmm. Your police steal blankets from people that you force to live on the streets, while you raid protests and criminalize people that are standing up for rights of migrants and asylum seekers. You want to give me a medal for actions that you fight in your own ramparts, Klimp wrote in the scathing post. Quote, It is time we call out hypocrite honorings <clears throat> and fill the void with social justice, she said. She went on to say that people don't need medals. Quote, we do not need authorities deciding about who is a hero and who is illegal, she said. In fact, they are in no position to make this call because we are all equal. Klimp and nine uh, <clears throat> of her shipmates have been under investigation in Italy after authorities impounded her ship, the Iuventa, in August of 2017. For years, authorities have... Uh, Authorities there have rallied against work by rescue organizations like Sea-Watch that pick up stranded migrants fleeing the Libyan coast for Europe. More recently, Italy's populist interior minister, Matteo Salvini, introduced a controversial security decree banning NGO migrant ships from entering Italian ports. As a result, Klimp and her team have been accused of aiding human trafficking. The Iuventa, uh, formerly a fishing vessel, is estimated to have saved 14,000 people. God damn. So first off, I want to fucking marry this woman. She's <laughs> she's brilliant. That she's a beautiful human being. That is what a social justice warrior should be. Should be. Yes. Like because she's, she's actually she's she, out there on her own time patrolling the waters not to imprison migrants and refugees, but to make sure that they don't die out there. Yeah. She's actually out there fighting for actual social justice. Not mm -hmm. any of this this Bullshit we have going over here with former Tumblrinas. If tum yeah. if Tumblr's still a thing, I guess actual Tumblrinas. But still, the point remains: uh, American SJW suck. This chick has her shit straight. Damn straight. She she has good morals about yeah. her. She knows what she's doing, and she knows everything she's going to do to meet her goals. And oh, yeah. I fucking love it. And I love that quote from her. In fact, they're in no position to make this call because we are all equal. God damn right. That. Which is an absolute debasing of authority. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck your authority. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> beautiful woman. But uh, this next article was posted by Teso Sagris on Tuesday, August 27th. And headline is, Exarchia, under, uh, <clears throat> Exarchia area under police attack by the new right-wing government in Greece. And this is from a, uh, a website that I believe is inherently uh, being posted by Greek individuals. So the translation is a little rough, but 
This is interesting. I didn't know I didn't know that Exarchia existed prior to this, but it sounds right. like a neat place. But uh, the famous rebel and solidarity district of Athens is completely surrounded by huge police forces. Many riot police buses, anti-terrorism police, motorbike policemen, members of the secret police, as well as a helicopter and several drones. Unique place, a <clears throat> uh, unique place in Europe for its high concentration of squats and other self-managed spaces, but also for its resistance against repression and solidarity with the precarious and uh, migrants. Exarchia has been a major focus of the right government since its election on July 7th. The new right prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, Greek sorry, stuff. It's Greek all, stuff. It's all Greek to me. Had made it a personal matter, especially since he had been mocked in early August for not having achieved his goal of cleaning Exarchia in a month as he had announced in Great Pumps. This morning, four squats had been evacuated. Um, I'm not going to read the names because that's very difficult. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but uh, the offensive is now is for now the northwest part of the neighborhood, with the remarkable exception of the squat Notara 26, known to be best kept and very important symbol for the neighborhood as the first historic squat of the refugee crisis in the uh, center city of Athens. We are currently counting about 100 arrested, as well as brutal attacks against people trying to film. In total, there are 23 squats in Exarchia, plus 26 others around the neighborhood, which is a total of 49 focused on a small area. 49 squats to which you need to add other types of self-managed places, some of them for rent, as well as dozens of private housing groups of activists often near the terraces to allow access uh, over the streets. Of the squats that is officially inside Exarchia, 12 are accommodation squats for refugees and migrants, and the other 11 are squats for political anarchists, <clears throat> autonomous group anarchists, most refugee squats are also, of course, very political, as they are organized through horizontal assemblies where the refugees can take their lives to their own hands and organize their everyday decisions equally and in solidarity of each other and every one of them. Notera 26, 5th High School of Exarchia, and Sparu Trikupi, 17, have a lot of links with the rest of the social movement and international solidarity support. In the squats of uh, Spiru, Trikupi, 17, and Transito, that the jacks of power now attack and destroy, more than a dozen children have been ripped away from a peaceful and happy existence to be suddenly sent to camps. The sinister and overcrowded camps where the migrants, they are poorly fed and suffer from temperature variations. New Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakotos, Jesus Christ, the fucking names! <laughs> requires that all refugees will be uh, well-closed in con uh, concentration camps and completely cut off from the rest of society. So they're actually calling theirs concentration camps. Yeah, so okay. I yeah, I did a little bit of reading on Exarchia when I you know, first started reading this ar article. I was like, what is this? And apparently it's like a small little uh, city or like a, it's a neighborhood within Athens that is full of migrants, refugees, uh, and anarchists. And it's basically like a little anarchist neighborhood, which ah, is pretty nice. fascinating. But huh. the current Greek government is basically cracking down on this neighborhood and trying to fuck with them. Why wouldn't they? They're anarchists. <clears throat> but um, I thought that was interesting. A little hard to read because you know I imagine the author was Greek because it is a Greek website. He did write it in English, but I'm pretty sure he's Greek. But... uh. 
pretty pretty fascinating and interesting and pretty I hadn't heard of, I've never heard of Exarchia before right I'm sure many of our <laughs> listeners probably haven't either so uh, there's your little uh, new information of the day yeah international anarchists pretty cool stuff but uh, this next article was posted by Jason Booth on Friday August 30th and it is why Hong Kongers are toppling lampposts which also earlier this week uh, Ryan Bauer had posted a, a video mm-hmm. of Hong Kongers uh, cutting down these lampposts felling a lamppost <laughs> like a tree it's it was beautiful. beautiful oh my god <laughs> but um, the most successful surveillance devices are unobtrusive by nature which means spotting them is difficult and engaging with them directly can be surreal cameras that look like cell phone chargers are cheap and difficult to spot law enforcement agencies mount gunshot detecting microphones and street lights and perch license plate readers on traffic lights the DEA hides cameras in traffic cones. Marketers track where you can get your ch- uh, where you get your chicken sandwiches. Popeyes. In Hong, in Hong Kong, anxieties about the surveillance tech arms race has fueled the ongoing rallies against a bill proposed, then suspended, but is still not withdrawn, that would give officials the authority to extradite suspects to countries without existing extradition agreements with the city. <clears throat> this includes mainland China, a terrifying prospect. Hong Kongers say undermines their autonomy and gives China the ability to silence those critical of its government. The Chinese government is notorious for its sophisticated surveillance apparatus, and evading it requires uh, equally sophisticated tactics. Protesters have been hiding their faces with surgical masks and umbrellas, using burner cell phones, and paying for transit in cash. And, for the past month, they've also been cutting down lampposts with electrical saws. Damn right. Yeah. Whoo, baby. Protesters fear these smart lampposts, uh, streetlights equipped with sensors and cameras perched high above the most densely populated areas of the territory, may, uh, may have surveillance and facial recognition capabilities. It's not been proved or debunked, but the threat is compelling enough that protesters have toppled 20 such lampposts since their rollout in July. Quote, I think that smart lampposts are just a trick the government is using to spy on us. It invades our privacy, a protester who gave the name Nick told the Hong Kong Free Press. Nicholas Yang Wei Hsiung. You've spent time in Korea. You can pronounce the fucking Asian names better fucking, than I can. What's his, what's his name? Nicholas Yang Wei Hsiung. I guess. Okay, Let's just thanks, go with that. James. We'll call him Nicky. Thanks, James. <laughs> Hong Kong's Secretary for Innovation and Technology has denied the claims... The South China Morning Post reported dismissing them as conspiracy theories. South China is best China. <laughs> Wait, no, Korea's. Korea's. <laughs> In a Twitter thread posted last week, Chris Lau, a reporter uh, with the South China Morning Post, filmed protesters dismantling a lamppost. Holding umbrellas, a handful of them obscured the person holding the saw, while others circled the group, likely lookouts for intervening police. In the footage, sparks fly and protesters exclaim, then cheer when the lamppost falls. Last week, Tic Tac Technology Limited, hell of a name, a local <laughs> firm that was supplying parts for the smart lampposts, announced that it was terminating its contract with the Hong Kong government after furnishing supplies for only 50 of the 200 posts it promised. Tic Tac representatives said in addition to property damage the company has suffered, its employees have received threats. Tic Tac did not immediately respond to a request for comment from the Atlantic. <clears throat> the Hong Kong government has acknowledged that the lampposts have enough hardware to spy on citizens, but says protesters' fears are unfounded. 
In July, as the first wave of lampposts were installed around the region, federal officials promised to disable some surveillance features, including license plate recognition and continuous audiovisual visual surveillance. Tony Wong, an assistant government chief information officer in Hong Kong, said in a recent press conference that the posts aren't capable of the invasive facial recognition deployed in China. That hasn't stopped the buzzsaws. On Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter, protesters have uploaded photos of the sawed-open guts of lampposts. It's risky to take crowdsourced information at face value in an environment so rife with propaganda and misinformation, but the posters speculate that these lamps' innards reveal tracking technologies similar to the surveillance systems the Chinese government uses as part of its re <clears throat> repressive campaign against the Uyghurs, yeah, the Uyghurs, China's Sunni Muslim minority group. Protesters reference the Uyghurs often in part because <clears throat> surveillance is an enormous part of China's campaign against them. New York Times reporters <clears throat> covering Uyghur repression in the Zhejiang uh, region of western China say constant surveillance is how China turned life into a prison. Chinese police set up facial scan checkpoints, mandated that Uyghurs install monitoring software on their phones, <clears throat> and encouraged neighbors to report one another's daily activities to police. Although the bill's been suspended, protests continue amid calls for Chief Executive Carrie Lam to resign and uh, radical changes to the region's election system. Whether or not Hong Kong's lampposts actually transmit data, as some believe, for protesters, the threat of Chinese surveillance in an unrestrained police state is politically compelling. It's the perfect conspiracy theory. Like, at this point, if there is a possibility of things getting worse, just take it as things getting worse. Mm -hmm. China has doubled down. Well, and the thing is, China are, like, definitely is confirmed they have surveillance lampposts. Oh, yeah. So... Why the fuck wouldn't the Hong Kong government that is in bed with China right now? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, they they are doubling down on the the surveillance and mm -hmm. overall control of but the individuals' lives. The beautiful part of this is that Tic Tac, the uh, the company supplying these lampposts, have cut the contract with the Hong Kong government, citing the. Uh, basically the damages to their equipment and threats made to their employees. Like, look. It's like, we're our, just, let's not do this. Making this equipment is fruitless and we don't want to die. Which, <laughs> good. Make them scared. Get out of bed with the government, you fucks. Make them scared. Yes. But uh, this next one was posted by myself on Monday, August 26th, and it is Tensions Escalate in Hong Kong Protests as Police Fire Weapon. Tensions flared in Hong Kong on a weekend that began with the formation of a peaceful human chain across the city and uh, culminated two days later with police firing a weapon and using water cannons for the first time. In the 12th straight weekend of protests, violent clashes erupted between police and protesters Sunday evening in the New Territories district of Tsun Wan. Uh, I just want to say real quick, that's 12 weeks straight. Yeah, that is, no that is literally all summer. That's three solid months that of protests. Is, that is a hell of a summer break. Beautiful I, individuals. I want that. <laughs> they came the day after Chief Executive Carrie Lam met with former officials and other prominent figures to build a dialogue that can resolve the crisis rocking the former British colony. Police arrested 86 people ages 12 to 52. Jesus. 12 to 52. Over the weekend, for alleged offenses including unlawful assembly, possession of weapons, and assaulting police officers, police officials said at a Monday briefing. 
Senior Superintendent Kong Wing uh, Chung said police used 215 tear gas canisters and 74 rubber bullets along with sponge bullets and beanbag rounds over two days. 21 police were injured, they said. Fuck, Fuck yeah. yes. Uh, that's more than 10% of the t- tear gas canisters and almost 20% of the rubber bullets fired since the protests began 12 weeks ago. So things are escalating. Um, you know, it's my understanding that uh, police's innards consist of freedom seeds. <laughs> so go plant a cop and plant those seeds of freedom. <laughs> those are jokes. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> the return to violence followed a peaceful mass march uh, the previous weekend that had fueled hopes of a reset after a period of escalating clashes between protesters and police. Historic protests opposing legislation allowing extraditions to China began in June and have since widened into a broader movement against Beijing's grip on the city that shows no signs of ending. Anson Chan, the uh, the city's former number two official and a member of the pro-democracy camp, said Monday that there was not much point in Lam's dialogue unless she was prepared to consider protester demands, including withdrawing the extradition bill and appointing a commission of inquiry into the unrest. It's all very, or uh, quote, it's all very well to have a dialogue, but if the dialogue leads absolutely nowhere, then this will just add to the increasing frustration and anger felt on the part of the protesters, Chan told Bloomberg TV. I love seeing where Hong Kong's going right now. It it feels good. It really it it makes you more confident that America can do something. Mm-hmm. Well, in America would be more effective. We have guns. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, at the same time, so do a lot of thin blue line fuckers. All these all these people that would do police work until the actual police show up. Yeah. It'd be disgusting. <laughs> it, like a, a revolution in the United States would be a civil war. It'd be difficult. It would be between actual pro-liberty individuals and loyalists. The proud slaves. The blue coats. We, we would literally have separatists and loyalists. Mm-hmm. We do. But uh, that actually brings us to our second wild card of the show. And this is our ace card. And this was posted by myself on Friday, August 30th. And the headline is, Joshua Wong and other Hong Kong pro-democracy leaders arrested ahead of rallies. Several high-profile pro-democracy leaders were swept up in a series of arrests on Thursday and Friday in Hong Kong ahead of what would be the 13th consecutive weekend of mass protests in the Asian financial hub. Activist Joshua Wong, who led the city's massive pro-democracy protests in 2014, and former legislative council candidate Agnes Chow were arrested on Friday, and Andy Chan, the uh, leader of a banned pro-independence party was detained by police on Thursday. In total, seven were arrested in connection with past protest-related offenses, police said. The arrests could further inflame tensions in the city after an already tense week. Last Sunday, a Hong Kong police officer fired a live shot into the air during protests for the first time. Later in the week, Chief Executive Carrie Lam refused to rule out invoking emergency powers and a prominent protest organizer was attacked by masked men and uh, carrying baseball bats and knives. Wong and Chow were released on bail Friday evening. Uh, addressing journalists on the steps of the courthouse, Wong said, uh, told reporters that the Beijing government are the ones who uh, back and endorse Hong Kong police to conduct such a mass arrest and prosecution. 
Chow described the arrests as a scare tactic, telling reporters, We can see very clearly that the regime and the HK government is trying to create a white terror to try and scare Hong Kong people to not participate in the social and democratic movement of the future. A mass rally had been planned for Saturday but was canceled on Friday amid news of, uh, of the arrests and after the organizers failed to secure authorization from the police. Our first principle is always to protect all the participants and make sure that no one bears legal consequences because of participating in the protest that we organized, said Bonnie Lung, vice conveyor of uh, organizing group Civil Humans Right Front. In addition to the arrests of Wong and Chow, outspoken pro-democracy politician Rick Huey was uh, arrested on Friday. Huey was uh, arrested Friday on suspicion of, quote, obstructing the police officers in the performance of their duty. The charge relates to Huey's alleged participation in a rally in Sha Ting uh, in Hong Kong's new territories. Andy Chan, founder of the outlawed Hong Kong National Party, had been arrested at Hong Kong International Airport the day before. Police said he was charged with suspicion of rioting and assaulting a police officer. Chan was among eight arrested in early August for possession of offensive weapons and suspected bomb-making materials. Police charged Wong, 22, with inciting others to participate in unlawful assembly, organizing unlawful, uh, unauthorized assembly, and knowingly participating in an unauthorized assembly. Chow, also 22, and a former uh, Demasisto Legislative Council candidate, was charged with inciting others to participate in unlawful assembly and knowingly participating in unauthorized assembly. The pair could face five years in jail if convicted of the most serious charge of inciting others to participate in unlawful assembly. Three more arrestees were not named, but police described them as two women suspected of breaking into Hong Kong's Legislative Council and a 59-year-old yeah. man suspected of rioting. Fuck yeah! Get it, Grandpa! <laughs> Damn! Demasisto tweeted Friday that Wong was, quote, forcefully pushed into a private minivan on the street in broad daylight near a subway station in a southern district of on, on Hong Kong Island at around 7.30 a.m. local time. Demasisto said on Friday <clears throat> that the arrests were meant to spread fear and that there is now, quote, no room for dialogue with the government. On Friday, there was confusion within the group over whether an arrest warrant had been issued for former party chair Ivan Lam. The group later tweeted that, there ha that uh, he had not been arrested. CNN has not confirmed Lam's whereabouts and has reached out for, uh, to police for comment. The director of Amnesty International Hong Kong <clears throat> describes the arrests as an outrageous assault <clears throat> on the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. The past week we have seen scare tactics straight out of Beijing's playbook. Pro-democracy protest organizers attacked by thugs, prominent activists arrested after being snatched from their homes and streets, and a major rally planned for Saturday banned, said Man K. Tam. So, uh, shit's heating up in Hong Kong. It's only getting worse. It it's, is only, it's getting better. This is only, only ramping up more and more and more. Nope. Tensions are increasing. These arrests are not going to help. The way, the way I'm seeing it, they're saying that they, uh, you know, the most serious charge is being rallying others to participate in an unlawful assembly. Mm -hmm. Let's hope that's true because that means that there are others that will come to fight for them. Yeah. There, there are others 
who are not going to be happy with these arrests. There are others that will help break them out of jail and tell the government to stick it up their ass. Mm-hmm. Like that, it, it, it's, it's like that scene in whichever Batman movie it was. Like you think that this is a multi-billionaire type person who spends his free time beating bad guys to a pulp and your idea is to arrest this man. Yeah. Like you think that this, this individual is rallying uh, citizens to fight the government and your idea is to arrest this man. <laughs> good idea. Good job. Let's do yeah, that totally. one. Let's just make this extremely public arrest Go, of this prominent political figure during an extreme time of unrest. Go get yourselves killed. That's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get yourselves killed. <laughs> so now it is time we ask the real question of this whole event. How do we smuggle guns into Hong Kong? Right? <laughs> I I am all for it. Let's let's get some drug running going. I'll oh, I'll fire man. up the Millennium Falcon and we will get right over there in under the Millennium twelve parsecs. Yes, <laughs> but it's interesting seeing where Hong Kong the Hong Kong protests are going. Um, I look forward to further developments. Which I mean, I actually posted a little bit right before we got the show kicked off this week. So we'll be more than likely be reporting on that next week. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Get ideas. Get all of the ideas. So many ideas. So many. But with that, I would say that ends this week yeah. of Week in Anjo. Yeah, that this does. episode. So uh, just touching up on our announcements, don't forget we that I did an interview with uh, Gwen Rose Berenger earlier today. Uh, that is posted up on our page as a thing with Gwen Rose Berenger. Yes. Feel, feel free to check that out. It was a fun time. And uh, as for my upcoming trip out of town, I'm going to be in Chicago uh, from the 8th to the 13th, which will put a damper on our uh, 9-11 uh, episode because 9-11 conveniently falls on a Wednesday this year. Yeah, so we're hoping to pre-record that episode so that it won't be fucky. <laughs> yeah. Worst case scenario, things are messed up, but we suck and you should be used to it. Any any efforts to do better is a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> they basically just come in random spouts of information. <laughs> or, uh, inspiration. I'm tired. It's almost midnight and I've been up for a while. Who? <laughs> But anyways, guys, uh, hope you guys have a great week. Have a good Labor Day for those of us in the southeast and on the east coast. Good luck with Dorian. Uh, have fun with that. We're I, I hope that it actually shows some uh, I, some some teeth here. I in plan Georgia. on taking I plan on taking Dorian out for dinner. Let's, yeah, I, let's do this shit. I let's, hope she shows whew. her teeth. But um, with that said, have a good week. Stay safe out there and don't die. We need you. And fuck the state.